Welcome to Policy Chats, the official podcast of the School of Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rachel Strassman. Join me and my classmates as we learn about potential policy solutions for today's biggest societal challenges. Joining us today is Mayor Pro Tem of the City of Coachella, Neftali Galarza. My fellow classmate, Rayon Kalam and I chatted with him about education as a means to break opportunity barriers and how education can adapt amid an ever-changing world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Galarza. It is such an honor to have you here. Your career is so inspiring because you've accomplished so much as a council member and the mayor pro tem of the city of Coachella and working closely with the Riverside County Office of Education. You have had such an amazing career. So going straight in, over the past few years, you've had so many different roles and worn so many different hats, all of which have been in service to your community, specifically focusing on education. Why is education so important to the overall well-being of communities? Yeah, uh, education is the fundamental uh, tool that we have in our country to empower communities and, and create thriving communities. When I was in college, I knew I wanted to study politics and I knew I wanted to be involved in the community one way or another. And I entered in many different places. I was a labor studies minor and so I had to do internships to complete that minor too. I entered uh, in offices of state assembly members uh, here locally and back home as well. Uh, did the UC Center Sacramento and worked on campus with the UCR Extension. Um, a lot of international students welcoming them and some of the certificate programs that existed. And then I also interned at the County Office of Education, specifically in their Head Start unit and for Head Start programs across the county. And Head Start, uh, unlike other educational programs, is, is housed in, the, in a different department in the federal government, focusing more on, on the social and housing of, of, the, of people and looking at in as a poverty program, not specifically as an education program, but they do connect. And in my internship program, also working at the UCR Extension School and then being a student here, I sort of uh, decided that my my focal point in politics or career it will be education. And so that's sort of like, I mentioned these experiences because it took a lot of these different ideas and opportunities and experiences that I put myself into and that opened up to understand like, you know, by focusing on education, then we empower communities and we empower individuals. We empower key points like empowering uh, the individual, as I mentioned, uh, ensuring that the individual uh, is self, has some self-love and, and knows their their place in this community, uh, processes, understands critical thinking. It, it also ensures that we have a cohesive and cultural aware community. And so communities understanding, you know, all of us here, our last names are very different. And I came from a community where most people that I, that I, I went to high school with that looked like me and talked like me. We were all Spanish speakers and then learn English. And it took me to go to college and then take some ethnic studies courses, have classmates of different backgrounds to understand other cultures. But it'd be how beautiful would it be where, you know, now great thanks to our former Sumner Medina, we're gonna have the ethnic studies in, in California in, in, a, in a high school level. And now we're not gonna have to wait or even for students that don't go to college to understand of different cultures and different backgrounds. That's very important to our education and for thriving communities as we grow. And especially at a time where we have such divisive communities that don't understand this cultural and, and uh, back, uh, other people, other people's backgrounds and needs and why we're here today in, in this uh, state and country that was built on immigrant by immigrants for an immigrant community. And so 
Another thing that's very important to me and dear is, is social economic mobility. Education creates that. You know, I came, uh, grew up in a mobile home park in Oasis, which is University County. And there, to this day, a lot of communities don't have access to potable water. And that's part of the, one of the reasons why we got involved in politics too. And so the idea that a kid that grew up in a mobile home park that doesn't have potable water, and it was until like about three years ago that it got its first park and that where it was a practice, a norm where in middle school and high school, we were working in the fields every summer. The idea that, that those students can go to college or go to a workforce, a CT program, and then join the labor union, but through education, you know, you create these opportunities. Now you could jump a few economic ladders. Now, you know, you could, you're, you're in a different tax bracket and that's through education that, that we have. Uh, these opportunities to to be able to create a, a, a community that that moves forward, that progresses, and that we bring here, everyone together. Those are, I'm sure I look back at my notes and say, you know, a few other points. But you know, thinking about the individual, the community, the uh, cultural awareness, and the the social economic mobility is very important. Thank you so much. Uh, I think you deliver a very powerful message about inclusivity and understanding different points of view and different cultural backgrounds and how that ties directly into education. And thank you again for your time today. Yeah. And really, we're really honored to have you on the Policy Chess podcast. So going back to how powerful education is and the impact that it has on these communities and how it advocates for social mobility as well as inclusivity and understanding amongst different peoples. But as you served your time in the realm of public policy, what are some of the policy reforms within the education system that you kind of can see that maybe you think aren't really addressing those things of social mobility or perhaps inclusivity? Well, I think for education, classrooms look very similar as they did decades ago. And I know we're gonna you know, get talking about you know, the advancement of technology. That's gonna be very important, you know, adapting to the new AI world, the new technologies that exist and how we can use those tools to empower communities. But in, in terms of educational reform that I think are very important, you know, now I'm a parent, I have uh, three kids. But even before that I mentioned, I started in education through Head Start. And Head Start has these very strict federal poverty guidelines that we follow for, for families to, 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 to have access to. In California, California, the federal poverty guideline is extreme, extreme poverty, you know, because we have a, a minimum wage in a federal level of 725 around. And in California, that's not true as it's 1550. So when we look at federal poverty guidelines to address federal programs implemented in California, uh, sometimes we have poor communities that aren't too poor to access some services. There are other state programs that address the state preschools that create opportunities. And for a long time, we hadn't seen an advancement of early childhood education, but our current governor and our current legislature has seen, we've seen an investment in universal TK, which is expanding for four-year-olds. We see it as an opportunity for adding that extra grade in the K-12 world. I have TK-12 and ensuring that all four years are taken care of. Right now, there's there advancement on some of the cutoff dates that existed in the TK program, but eventually all four-year-olds will be able to qualify for TK. And then looking at state preschools and these, these federal schools and other nonprofits that address also early child education and child care, 
looking at our zero to three-year-olds. How can we now ensure that every three-year-old also goes to preschool? And so those ideas in, you know, that in, you know, five years ago or even more recent, we couldn't even think about it being pragmatic, but I think we can see it today in a world where things seem so far. But I also think as a rural community, I grew up in very rural areas. When these things are implemented, we also looked at populations and where people live. And so when you live in dense areas, you have more access to different types of programs because of all I'm not saying that's all you know amazing and perfect but there is more opportunities because the people are competing than organizations or schools are competing each other versus uh, in rural California like in the Coachella Valley East Coachella Valley or in the central San Joaquin Valley you don't have like the competition of of uh, multiple public schools multiple charter schools and then other private schools and nonprofits looking you know there is existing but you don't have it as extreme as you have it in, in the dense areas like LA or San Francisco and so now how can we attract more programs to compete and to create more opportunities for these rural communities is very important. I think the state legislature has done a good job in addressing some of these things, but we could do, you know, obviously move forward and expand from from those type of things. Um, in terms of uh, K-12, I talked about where, you know, ethnic studies, and that's very important. I see that Governor Newsom is also addressing a lot of the issues that needed to be addressed with the local control accountability plan, the OCAP that was introduced by Governor Brown. And that's for you know having the in local control and ensuring that we can look at student achievement as well and and how can we ensure that we close the opportunity gap for these communities while we're addressing the funding of these schools and then in in higher education we see so many issues from uh, community college not being accessible to certain areas or too far where people have to drive and then there's not enough public transportation like is the case in the desert or you know we see the year after year tuition increase it says being proposed and how does that create what, what kind of issues does it create for our communities our working class communities but also our middle class families that some of the middle class families don't have all this access to the financial aid but they're also not super rich to be able to afford these 12,000 plus tuition rates plus housing that could be equal to that here uh, in California. You talk a lot about opportunity gaps and trying to bridge those gaps which is very important. Would you say that the starting of bridging of those gaps starts in nonprofits and non-governmental organizations, or it's the government identifying a public problem and yeah. then from that nonprofit start to form to address the issue? I mean, I think it's a government's responsibility. I believe that is it is a government responsibility to address these issues. There are nonprofits that are available and exist. So one way that government sometimes executes these programs is by having nonprofits apply for these grants and then they do the on-ground work that because some of these nonprofits have the relationship with communities versus sometimes when government officials come to communities that they're not from, maybe they don't, you know, sometimes communities not as trustworthy of them. So I think there's opportunity to build partnerships with government and non-government agencies. At the end of the day, I do think that education falls in the responsibility of the government and not of the nonprofit. I think the nonprofit can be the tool to enact these services in partnership with the government. That's a great way to describe it, is the nonprofit is the tool that has the connections with the community to make a more broad policy have a more personal effect. Kind of building off of that, 
in terms of reforms that need to be made in education, what are some reforms that are currently in progress that hold promise? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I talked a lot about the early child education. I see that being addressed in the last few legislative sessions. And, you know, someone you know that's a parent and as a council member, Mayor Pro Tem in our city, we know that as childcare and for the young kids is, is, is tough. And so we've seen also an expansion of part-time centers to full-day preschools. So that those hold great promises. I think this year too is following other legislation around um, uh, ensuring that we have more funding for dual enrollment for high school students to be enrolled in college courses. And so by the time they get here, students have college credits. The funding formulas, I think they're, people are looking at different opportunities to, to fund schools that doesn't just rely on um, average daily attendance. And then also the, the ideas of, of other stuff like discipline, how we discipline schools. I see some legislation targeting removing suspension and expulsions for uh, defined students. And so those things are interesting debates that happen. You know, as long as we, when we're pushing policy in our state, that the topic conversation is always student-centered. Uh, in the local level, in the city, uh, we, uh, you know, get a chance to work with the school district and get a chance to, we just, uh, not long ago, but we haven't fully implemented it. We voted to create our youth council in the city too, to engage more students. So I think they, you know, I'm, I'm about to turn 30, uh, still young, I think, but it takes a lot of the, you know, when I was in high school or when I was in K-12 or when I was in college, the needs were very different. So it's important for us to learn from current high school students, from current college students about the needs that exist today and seeing how we can tackle those. Thank you so much again for your response, and very young by my count as well. Yeah, so. Thank you, thank you. And and you you did a great job of elaborating for us some of the local and then also the statewide different reforms in education. But is there more of an impact in making important decisions in regards to education in one or two of these areas of policy? <clears throat> Do you think it, it is more specifically focused at the local level or at the statewide level or perhaps even the national level? Yeah, well, I think we need to have a, a partnership and, and uh, working. Uh, uh, we all work, you know, all, all these different, you know, local, state, and local, regional, state, and, and federal government work together to implement programs. You know, federal government makes sure we provide federal and state, you know, provides a lot of funding. The state sets a lot of the standards. And then in the local level, we do implement a lot of the work with local perspective and the local control funding formula does a good job in including fa- uh, local families and the decision making. And I'm very, you know, as a council member and a former board member, very supportive of the idea of, of local involvement. I am not supportive of local involvement when it means, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm supportive of local involvement, but I'm not as supportive of communities that want to use that to discriminate against people. So saying like that the state, you know, for instance, big conversation today is around uh, the banning of books. And, and so some school districts feel that they have the authority to ban books or ban certain curriculum, curricula that, that uh, fosters empowerment in, in, uh, within their youth. Uh, they see these types of educations as, as, uh, as wrong. And, but we can look at, uh, and, and they use that local control as saying, you know, we, are, we voted for these school board members and we have all decision. I, I think that's sort of where it draws sort of a, a gray area for people that are very, you know, very supportive of local control, but but hate doesn't trump, you know, it, it, sh- it shouldn't, you know, control, include it in the idea of local control. At that point, we do need to make sure that state standards are followed and that the state needs to intervene when things like that do happen. And so I think it needs to be balanced. 
not one agency has control uh, power over the other. There is an, um, a relationship, you know, there's the, the funding and the standards and the implementation of it, but we need to work in partnership. We can't work in silos or else the people that are gonna have the, you know, the service is gonna be the students because, you know, our local government has a different idea than the state and so does that of the federal government. I think we all need to work in, in together because at the end of the day, the party politics, that doesn't matter when you're a three-year-old, you know, trying to get into preschool or you're a 10-year-old in elementary school or 12-year-old middle school or 15-year-old high school, you know, these party politics that are so divisive, they they, they, they don't, you know, they don't matter to these kids and uh, we need to bring, bring back the conversation centered around around the children, uh, not about party politics that are we're bringing into our school districts. Mm-hmm. No, I understand completely. Thank you for um, that response. It's, it was very detailed and it, it explains a lot about the different levels of policy and how each each area of public policy actually goes into the state, local, and um, regional level. Social injustice, health disparities, climate change. Are you interested in solving pressing challenges like these currently facing our region and the world? Then consider joining the next cohort of future policy leaders like me by applying for the UCR Master of Public Policy program. Learn more at mpp.ucr.edu. You can also find the link in our show notes. You kind of hinted at it earlier, but to look into the future, what implications does the seemingly constant evolution of technology, as you're saying with AI, and you know, I feel like every day there's something new that's coming out that's yeah. changing the way we learn. What implications does that have on education, and how can we adapt ourselves and our education system to best support the needs of this changing world and now changing youth? Yeah, I'm not an expert, so it's just my opinions or how I view this. I, you know, AI and at first I was like, you know, what is this? You know, and I was seeing images on social media, people creating images with AI, and so like I didn't understand it. And then I made an account on ChatGPT and I started using it. I think obviously it's it's a great tool that it's going to exist. It's going to be there, and so how do we embrace it? Is I think the the, the conversation that some professionals are having. Um, I'm of the opinion that in, that that we need to find a way that we 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 use it in our daily lives, and we use it at work and education. Obviously, not to plagiarize, and and so I know the educational professionals are looking at at those specific, you know, how you know, students using AI for work aside for educational assignments. Uh, you know, I, I think those are are uh, a different debate, but it, it, but we, we can't be afraid of it or shut it down because we don't understand it. I think that AI wasn't a thing, you know, years ago, I, even when Grammarly came around, I was in college and I didn't have Grammarly and then I started working and I discovered Grammarly and I connected to my email and it corrects my grammar all the time. And so that idea too, like, you know, that, that seemed so new to me and so different. And I was even scared of like, oh man, this is not me talking, but it is, you know, it just, you just adjust. So now using AI is now, how do you, how do you embrace that too into your daily lives, into education, into the workforce? How do we empower individuals to seek careers in that field, in tech industry? I, I'm speaking here on as, as, as a council member and I want to make sure that 
I say that because I wear the other hat at work and my opinions that I share are, are, are me in as, as, as a council member. But it, it, at RCOE, they have a department on of education technology now and they have embraced esports. They have tournaments for high school students and scholarships for esports. You know, esports is a growing, a growing phenomenon. You know, people are watching it. Uh, people are watching people play video games and someone that hasn't played video games since Nintendo 64 was around. I didn't understand it, but I know it's real and people are embracing it. And so uh, how do we now, you know, continue embracing these different technologies? And and I think it'll just be a better way if, once we learn how to properly implement it and not be so scared of it. Uh, because people would worry that, you know, using it in thinking of it as a negative connotation, I think we need to look at it as a positive way and seeing how we can ensure that whether we have career tech fields into ed technology, into these um, new forms of technologies. And there are some in Desert Sands, there's, uh, um, in, you know, IT programs in other school districts in the county of Riverside, there's many different IT career tech, uh, through the career technical education programs that uh, empower students to learn how to how to obtain these uh, these skills to be part of this modernized world. I, I you know, again, I, I think it's, I think I think I think it's a a, a, a great uh, you know uh, it's scary, you know it can be scary, um, but but it, but if we embrace it and we learn about it, we we're not scared about. It. <laughs> and embracing it is it's such a unique aspect of education that you have to set policies in place, but also be prepared for the ever changing world. And so, kind of going off of that, would you say that as policy takes a long time to change, and now technology is taking a lot shorter of a time to change as time goes on? Would you say that our education system is prepared for the fast changes that are coming and to adapt to the changing needs? Or would you say it's something that needs to be worked on for the future? Well, I, I, I'm an optimistic person. So I want to say that, that that we have the best people in, 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 in these universities. And, uh, and obviously, there's some things that, again, we don't understand because, as you mentioned, things are ever-changing. And so I think we have people that are adaptable and can assimilate to the changing world. And, uh, you know, I, I think we trust our diverse community here to... Uh, help the educational professionals adjust to it. You know, I, I, I know that, for instance, COVID-19 um, was such a troubling time for all of us in, across the world. And the idea of for, for um, high schools or K-12 schools, so from one week to another to go online, you know, we, you know, we thought about it, you know, prior to 2020, like, that probably wasn't like something we could do. People thought like, there's no way we could do this, you know, with the lack of infrastructure, of internet, the lack of devices. And somehow communities, the counties, the, the county office of eds, the school districts, local leaders, nonprofits, everyone partnered together to ensure that that happened. And it, it was done. You know, I think that if we're met again with an emergency to meet these things, uh, I think that we're going to see that that unity again and, and we'll meet them. But I think as if, you know, we've seen gradual change, I, I believe that, you know, as, as an optimist person that we're in, that we have the right folks in, in, in the positions to make these changes. And if not, then, you know, we need to make sure that that, that they are in, in these places. Thank you, Mayor Galarza. I couldn't agree more that I I think it's hard to say that with these new incoming technologies that they aren't going anywhere. And so I think the approach should be towards uh, adaptability and, and supporting them and uh, trying to benefit that into our own infrastructure. Yeah. Um, 
really quickly, I just wanted to shift gears here. So a lot of our podcast listeners are predominantly university students, ranging between the ages of 18 and 22. So I just wanted to ask you if there was any other ways that students like myself or uh, my colleague Rachel might be able to get involved in local government or perhaps any career or internship opportunities that we should be looking at post-graduation. Yeah. Hey, before I get to this, I've, I've had like thoughts about the last question and then I'll go to this. Not long ago, I read a book, uh, Robert Iger, who's the CEO of Disney. And in the book, he, I think, I think the title is Adventure of a Lifetime, something like that, a journey of a lifetime. So, you know, and and so in the book, he talks about like you know when he became CEO, there's all these different challenges with Apple, with Pixel, and and these are at one point like competitors. And so he thought, you know, I think about the idea of Pixels. I think the form, the former like. Bob Iger was was very progressive in the way he thought and or is very progressive in the way he thinks and so Pixar had sort of a advance and, and was a lot more progressive in terms of the technology than Disney was in, in animation and Disney at one point was you know sort of the goat on that right and and now you had Pixar who who had former employees of, of Disney now creating better movies that are you know better technology and it, it, former CEOs saw that as a competition and didn't embrace it. They didn't embrace it, and and they were losing to to Pixar. Uh, the movies that Disney was releasing were not getting as many sales, theater views as the movies Pixar was releasing. releasing. And so when when Bob Robert Iger became CEO, instead of keeping that idea of like we don't know we don't understand it, so there are there are, we're, we're, there are enemies, we're not going to embrace them. He embraced it. He worked with with Apple and uh, eventually bought uh, Pixar and hired uh, everyone there. And and the way he did it, he, he you know when he bought up Pixar, he told the, sta- the 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 leads there, you don't need to adjust to to this to the Disney way. We want the Pixar way to teach us. And so I think that's sort of like, I, I, I think about that story and, and how Bob Iger was now, and you know, now you have Disney Pixar and you have all these great movies like WALL-E that, you know, came out and these new Elemental and, you know, a lot of up, you know, uh, a lot of different movies that, that have Disney Pixar and very successful movies that have a combination of both because of that idea versus, you know, who could think of a world where Disney and Pixar aren't sort of together today and so you know, I, I'm glad I read that because now like, when I look when I see a challenge that makes me uncomfortable instead of seeing it just something like I'm gonna ignore I learned through that story that we need to embrace it and sometimes sometimes it, it's it's uncomfortable that other there's other people that know more than we do or other technologies but if we embrace it and we learn from them then we're gonna be able to create a better a greater community of better us so I wanted to I, I wanted to share that because I just thought about about that anecdote as as you were talking, but um, no, thank you for yeah. sharing them. I think yeah. it's a it's a great lesson not only in policy but also yeah. in life. So, yeah. yeah, it's embrace it's embrace change. <laughs> Back to the uh, internships. You know, as a council member in Coachella, there's been internships. There was already paid internships like, in the city, but we sort of uh, embraced it and grew it too. In Coachella, we have now uh, we partnered with One Future Coachella Valley. They're uh, an educational organization. They focus on college and career readiness uh, in the desert uh, Coachella areas. Coachella Valley areas work with uh, all the three school districts there and the community college and all the different higher education institutions. And even One Future, they started as a committee under another organization 
and they were called Pathways to Careers, and now it's called One Future, and they're a bigger entity. They outgrew their organization that they were once part of, and we partnered with them, and now what what we're doing is we have uh, paid interns at the city of Coachella every summer, students like us that go back home, and before, when I was in college, when I'd go back home, I'd work at uh, Del Taco, I worked at a guitar string company where we did a lot of packing and coiling guitars, I worked at a Chinese restaurant, and I'm very thankful for these experiences, but had I had an opportunity to intern in the city and for the summer, and it being an educational opportunity that also pays me, that you know I can save some money for to come back, you know, to college, and I'm you know I'm not broke, like you know, and so that idea sort of you know I I, I thought about it, and so I uh, worked with another council member, Stephanie Virkin, to bring up this proposal to our city, and we were able to fund uh, these now summer interns uh, in the city of Coachella, and so with, in partnership with One Future Coachella Valley, uh, so big shout out to them to being partners and health, health career pathways that they've been using for a while. And so those are, you know, it's, it's, it's a growing thing. When I was in college, I was, a, you know, I mentioned I was an, an intern in Head Start at RCOE. At the time, there was no paid internship. So I was an un, unpaid intern. But I'm glad I did it. I knew I had to take that sacrifice and make myself uncomfortable to learn more about the different career opportunities. But it wasn't a popular thing to have paid internships. Now, they're, now it is. And then, you know, Mentioning uh, in my day job, I mentioned I work at the County Office of Education, and through there we have paid internship programs for college students throughout the county of Riverside, and now Imperial County because uh, Imperial County Migrant Head Start is also part of our COE. We have 20 positions of paid interns throughout the year, so we have two cohorts: uh, one in the school year from uh, September to end of May. So that's one cohort of students that, when you're in college, so you're in our Riverside or local school, you could be an intern with us here in downtown. Or you're in the desert and you're a college of desert student or going to Casa San Bernardino out in the desert, then, you know, you could intern with us in Indio. In Marietta, we also have offices there where students that are in San Marcos State or community colleges down there, they can also intern with us. Or um, in Imperial County, there's a lot of different, you know, there's Imperial Valley College, San Diego State. And so now we have paid internship programs for, for students. So that's one cohort. And then we also use that summer uh, program idea and the idea for it is we do understand that during the school year we we you know we don't discriminate against anyone a lot of our interns during the school year are students that are here for school not all of them necessarily live here throughout the year and so sometimes they go back home for the summer and then we have all these other students that are from Riverside County Schools that go to UCLA, go to UCSB, other schools out of the area, but they come back home and now we have summer internship for them to be here and working in on educational issues. And, and education for, you know, our students listening to the idea of working in a school district is not only for teachers, you know, you have fiscal departments, you have technology ITs, you have different uh, uh, mental health, social, emotional learning, all these different programs that exist within educational institution that isn't just the idea of like teacher or principal well, there's uh, uh, just uh, various, various opportunities that exist in education institutions. So I really encourage people to look into those, look into municipalities. And if your city hasn't taken on a uh, paid internship in the summer, it'd be great to approach your local council member and say, hey, you know, uh, at the city of Coachella, uh, they're doing this. And uh, why, why why not here? Right. And, and uh, you know, more than happy to advocate. I think that this approach of having paid interns and paid interns should not be a replacement of other employees. It should be an educational learning opportunity for both. You know, it, it's it's a, it's an enrichment opportunity for both the municipality and the student. 
And so, you know, if your city doesn't have a summer paid internship program, you should advocate for one to exist and ensuring that they can use some of their savings or some of the general funds or looking at state grants that I know that our state legislature too, uh, our former speaker, Randon, has talked about paid internship programs and started paid internship programs in Sacramento. I also did UC Center in Sacramento when I was in college. And I I, I learned a lot when I was there. And uh, the assembly member I worked for, is Eduardo Garcia, took really good care of me and I learned a lot. But when, you know, through the UC Center program, there was an opportunity to get paid. And so I was, you know, doing it for free while also going to college. And so, you know, those, you know, those things are changing though. You know, this, I'm going to call, I graduated in 16. It's not long ago, but, you know, thinking about it now, uh, seven, eight years later, we're seeing a lot of paid internship opportunities come up and they're valuing these, the, the labor and the, and creating these educational opportunities for the students because we know that uh, these students are going to be the next generation um, that are going to be in these jobs. And if, it, you know, and, and I mentioned that it's very important to have paid internships too that institutions need to get, get because uh, those students that can take advantage of unpaid internships are probably students that you know don't, don't have the need in terms of social economic issues at home. I had to take loans to do these internships, and I'm paying them off now. I'm, I'm grateful that uh, things have worked out for me, but it was a. Uh, uh, it, it was a gamble that I took on myself and the organizations that I wanted to intern for. When we have a paid internship program, we can ensure that a college student isn't working at a fast food restaurant, going to school full time, and then looking for paid inter- for for unpaid internship program. Why not ensure that you know they just go to school full time and then have a paid internship program without having to look for other ways of making money. It could be learning while making money should be an idea. And I know that, you know, we have different opportunities also on paid jobs here at, on campus. And so continuing to enrich those, hopefully the university is embracing and creating more jobs for students. I was a employee here when I was a student. I mentioned I I also worked for UCR Extension. I worked at the Hub for a while, I was in dining services. But a lot of times when I worked here, when I, when, when I worked here, I also had other jobs. I worked at a local library, uh, home gardens as well. Uh, and then mentioned the different fast food and restaurants that we worked on. And I'm glad I did them, but I wish I didn't have to do it. I learned a lot um, in terms of like work ethic and time management. But I, I think I could have learned that without having to put myself in in positions where I, I, I you know, my social life was impacted or, or I was, you know, behind on schoolwork uh, because I had to go to work. And sometimes we would lose that idea of like, oh, I need to go make money to pay rent. But I'm but I'm here to go to school, you know, and so yeah, those are just different, you know, thinking out loud. But look for paid internships in the field that you want to work for. Don't shy away from emailing people. Say you go to the website and they don't have an internship, email them, and they might create something. I mentioned my experience when I was in college. I went through the RCOA website and I didn't see a college internship opportunity, so I emailed them directly, and then they found a spot for me. Fast forward, you know, and now I'm an employee there, right? And so take risks and at the end of the day like the worst case scenario is you're in the same place that you are right now and that's not a bad place you know you're on your way to graduate from college yeah something that you've mentioned throughout the conversation we've had today is amid diversity whether of background or diversity of need what really is important is unity through change and unity despite change and whether it's unity of each other to grow together and handle that change together or unity of 
even looking into government of the different branches of government and the different levels of government to help create effective change that works for everyone. And I think that that represents exactly what education needs is a good foundation in unity and bringing communities together and a good foundation that adapts to the changing world and everything around us. And so with that, it has been such an honor to get to speak with you. And we are so grateful to have you here today. And thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. This podcast is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. And our theme music was produced by C. Coday. For the latest updates on the School of Public Policy, be sure to check us out at UCR underscore SPP on Instagram. Or for more episodes and content, visit our YouTube channel. I'm Rachel Strassman. Till next time.